Before we begin, I'd like to thank our sponsors, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Google, and Second Front Systems for their support of this series. Hey y'all, it's Caitlin. I just wanted to give you a quick update. So sadly, Lindsay has actually left CSIS. She's now pursuing emerging technology policymaking from a front seat inside the government. You can catch up with her on LinkedIn or Twitter. Now, because we have really busy schedules and so do our awesome guests, we actually pre-record a lot of these episodes. So if you hear Lindsay reference a project she's working on or a report she's doing for CSIS, just know that this could have been recorded a couple weeks ago. Welcome to Tech Unmanned, a CSIS podcast where we bring together technologists and policymakers to discuss the intersection of defense, national security, and emerging technologies. I'm Lindsay Shepard, a fellow with the International Security Program. And I'm Caitlin Johnson, Deputy Director and Fellow with the Aerospace Security Project. Today's episode is focusing on the science, technology, engineering, and mathematics workforce in the national security sector. STEM has been the focus of a variety of research in recent years, from my own publications at CSIS to the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence's final report, uh, to the Future of Defense Task Force, and even the organization of one of our guests today, thinking through how we upskill and hire technical and digital talent in the national security workforce is an urgent priority for the Department of Defense and the federal government writ large. And Caitlin and I are so delighted to be joined here today uh, by Dr. Vint Cerf, the Vice President and Chief Internet Evangelist at Google. Thanks for having me on board, Lindsay. And by Jennifer Anastasoff, the Executive Director and Co-Founder at the Tech Talent Project. It's wonderful to be here, Lindsay. Thank you. Well, let's dive right in. So we're going to start off by, Vent, I'm going to turn to you first to give a kind of framing of the issue and, and how did we get to where we are today. So how has the role of digital technologies and the internet shaped our workplace and workforce? And so why are we having this conversation today about STEM workforce? Well, this is not a new conversation. The conversation has been going on for quite a long time, and it's not just in the DOD, it's in elsewhere. When I was on the National Science Board, STEM workforce was very, very high priority. Uh, for us. And how did we get here? Well, that's pretty easy. The digital revolution starts, you know, with the arrival of the transistor in 1947, and it's been escalating ever since. Just look around you. You don't even have to think about Defense Department matters. Look around you at the number of devices that you are using or are dependent on that have software in them. Uh, that number is, is increasing well beyond the number of people there are on the planet. And that dependency is exactly what's driving the need for uh, higher quality STEM workforce in almost all aspects of our economy, including our national security activity. The thing which I think is the most crucial, however, is that the Defense Department has historically depended increasingly on the civilian population in order to not only build, but also to operate its technology, and that includes the potential for being in uh, risky areas like war zones. And the fact that the civilian sector is needed to do that immediately tells you that we should be trying to bring into the military the right talent so that we don't have to rely on or put civilians at risk. So there's a, a very pragmatic reason for increasing the STEM capacity in the Defense Department. We won't ever escape our 
significant dependence on the private sector. That's where all weapon systems come from, for example, and all the logistics. But we still need to have a better capacity in uniform in order to operate these things in the field. And Jennifer, your organization, the Tech Talent Project, was founded to address some of these issues. Could you give us a little intro to what you guys do and maybe just the current state of technology capacity and leadership in DOD right now, as well as in other national security organizations? Yeah, the the Tech Talent Project was created specifically to bring senior level technical leaders into government initially, right? But the what we really identified as a critical opportunity and a critical challenge is not only do we need to identify folks who can come in from somewhere else, basically create that call to action. To Vince's point, this is not a new thing. I, I would say that we've done less around actively recruiting and actively engaging and actively highlighting the need for senior level tech leaders to come into government. And so we need to do that more. What we've identified is that, A, we need to document this need. What is the need for senior level leadership who understand modern technology and government? We need to identify strong technical leaders uh, with a commitment to service and, a, and who have a promise for service and engage them in government. And we ultimately have to build this field because it's not just one organization or one group or one agency that's going to be able to do this. Although if one agency could, it would be DOD that is going to be able to really get up to speed. But we're going to need to build a field around it. So we've been focusing on that. What I would say is uh, that's been really interesting as we talk about the current status of, of DOD and the intelligence services is we talk a lot about being at cutting edge in a lot of different ways. But when it comes down to functional, operational, technical and operational leadership, it's really critical that we have folks who understand technology at those levels. And that's both folks in uniform. We're not going to be able to buy or, or contract our way out of this, right? What we need are people within the DOD. We need people who are within all of the agencies within government who understand enough to hold the private sector and to hold folks who are coming in, folks that we're contracting with accountable to what the government needs and to what people need. So so that's kind of, I think, the status right now is we're behind. We're severely behind in terms of do we have the information and are we actually collecting data in a way that allows us? And then I'd be really curious to get your perspective on this, but are we actually even collecting data that allows us to use AI at the level that we're talking about, right? Are we collecting it? Is it clean? Do we understand how to think about it? Are we thinking about it ethically? Like, there's a lot going on there. The answers are something like yes, no, no, yes, mobile. Uh, look, for, we are collecting a lot of stuff, but it isn't clean and it's hard to uh, analyze. It's, it's sort of like watching the stock ticker tape is a mess. Look, there's something else I want to emphasize here. You mentioned leadership several times, but I want to point out that the STEM workforce that we need and want is more than just the leadership. We need rank and file with the appropriate skill. And it's valuable to them and to us because, you know, they serve their period of service as volunteers in the military. And then when they go out looking for work, I can tell you there's plenty of work out there with people with these skills. What we learned at the National Science Board is that we have been heavily focused on people getting PhDs and leading research. But then when you get down to the nuts and bolts, literally, and you say, well, how does this actually get done? The answer is, well, we need engineers and we need technicians who build things and operate things and gather the data to either prove or disprove the theories that the principal investigators have. And in the absence of that workforce, you know, we don't make any progress in the research because often 
that research is key to our ability to measure things and in your parlance gather data. Well, and, and to that point, I mean, I think the NSCI CAI report really hit on something that was critical, which is that we don't have a pathway for rank and file folks to actually develop and be rewarded for on their path to leadership themselves or as they grow, we don't have a pathway that focuses on technical expertise. It's assumed that if people do it, they'll just do it and that'll be great. But there's no there's no next step. It's not part of the performance process. <laughs> that's going to be really critical, I think, to support continued growth. I think that's really interesting. So you guys, I mean, we've touched on a lot of things. One, we've kind of highlighted that there is a an urgent need as digital technologies are becoming more intertwined with not just the technical organizations and national security, but really the broad organizations. There's a need for knowledge and understanding throughout the entire enterprise from your, you know, brand new new hire out of college to, you know, leaders, senior leaders that are making choices. And then Jennifer, you and Vent have both really talked about different issues along this talent pipeline of having pathways for growth or rewarding through promotion. So if we think about this personnel pipeline in phases, so we're, we're doing the recruitment of new talent, hiring that talent, getting it into the department, retaining the talent, keeping it and promoting it within the organization, or even upskilling the existing talent. Where are those immediate efforts that we should be focusing on? Are, are there any priority areas in that personnel pipeline? Yeah, I don't feel entirely up to speed on exactly where the emphasis should be, except to observe that we have an awful lot of digital capability uh, and in the current DOD systems, but a lot of it is really old. This is certainly true in the IC space as well. So one thing we need to do is to have people around who can help us do a significant forklift upgrade to current technology. The second place that we really need attention is that some of that technology is getting more and more complex. Tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of lines of code or more that have to work. So we need people who are at least familiar enough with this stuff to recognize when it isn't working the way it's supposed to. And I get worried, by the way, about machine learning and artificial intelligence stuff because we've already learned that the training mechanisms depend heavily on the kind of content that the training is done with. And if that content has biases or other weaknesses, then we get decisions out of the system that may not be the ones we expect. So that, once again, skill and understanding that is very important. That's all the more reason to train large, diverse groups of people who are already, who are, who are serving. I think, is it recruiting? Is it hiring? Is it retention? Is it promotion? Yes, right? Like we, we're, we're operating in the 90s. And, and when we're lucky, we're operating in the 90s, maybe the 2000s. But uh, we need to be able to hire effectively. We need to be able to support, train, mentor people effectively. And we don't have folks who are at the mid-level and who are at the senior level who can do so. Then you bring in early stage people. We really have to be doing it on, on, on a regular basis and in parallel. Because if you bring people in and you aren't supporting and mentoring them, then we have challenges. What's been interesting is seeing Kessel Run and the Air Force. They've actually, I think, done a, a, a good job. I've met a few folks who have gone through three years of training that's on the job training. They've been doing really well and leaving and getting great jobs after they leave. And it'd be great to, to build that pathway so folks decide to stay even longer. Uh, but what I would say is there are many hiring authorities that Congress has given, you know, both DOD and, and the IC community. And yet 
we're not using it. We're not using them effectively. We're not using the hiring authorities to hire the people that we need to hire in the way that we need to use it. Folks are afraid to do so. There are many reasons why that may be the case. But we have to get real about it's not another hiring authority. We have now a cybersecurity hiring authority. It's not another hiring authority. It's let's use the ones we have and let's use them effectively. Let's create less complexity, but hire better. And then I would throw out uh, with regards to hiring, but also with regards to promotion, we need to focus on subject matter expertise. It is unthinkable in the private sector that we would hire folks and that you would create a pool of people without having a strong ability to review subject matter expertise. And that is not something that we are always prioritizing in our hiring process, simply because of the way the process is. That is why we use hiring authorities. That's why we use direct hire. And what I would say is there's a subject matter expertise qualifications assessment that is being tested now in a few agencies. But the point being, I I literally can't think of a credible organization that would hire an engineer without seeing if they understood engineering. And so we need to be at that level. So here's an example of bringing highly talented, digitally talented people into U.S. government, the U.S. Digital Service. That got started primarily because of a massive problem uh, with the healthcare sign-up system, which did not work at scale. And of course, it expanded dramatically and has continued to this day. But it's a wonderful example of bringing people in at a place where they have a lot of leverage. Of course, in the case of defense and IC, we need people to stick around, and that means we have to have paths for them. Now, I'm not familiar with all of the right uh, jargon here, but I used to think anyway that there were paths for, you know, technical paths for different kinds of, you know, you were a technical sergeant at a certain level and so on. It's just that we may not have defined uh, the right categories for these digitally related skills. And that's probably one thing we could consider doing. From someone up on the outside, often when I hear about this conversation, people start complaining about paying people like what they're worth in the private sector and that the government just can't keep up. Is that a real issue here or does that argument not really hold any water? Well, it does hold water. I mean, the, you talk about military families and what they go through. Some of them are in food stamps. There's something wrong about that. But I will say there are a couple of things that they have going for them. The first one is that there are retirement benefits if you stick around. And the second one is that after you've finished your primary service, if you choose to go back into the civilian sector, you are now skilled. And that has been true in the past for other kinds of skills. Coming out of the Defense Department, out of the military, there have been really good jobs for people to take, and the same will be true here. That may or may not make up, however, for the instantaneous compensation that shows up, but at least there is a little more on the table than just straight pay. So uh, Vint had brought up the digital service. So I actually joined the federal government uh, specifically as the the person who was engaging folks from Silicon Valley and, and the metaphorical Silicon Valley around the country to come into service with Todd Park and with Megan, who was amazing. And what what we found, I would say, is, you know, of course, if you can make significant amounts of money working in the tech industry, that is that is a draw. I will also say that there are many people at specific stages in their lives and, and so on, but there are many people who are specifically learning, they're looking for meaning. And meaning does not take the place, the idea that when you mentioned that, you know, there are families on food stamps, that's horrendous and we need to fix that. That's not okay. But when I'm talking about bringing in folks, if folks, folks can come in for, if folks can come in for two years, for four years, what we found is 
that there's a real desire to give back. And there's a real mission here that folks can get excited about. So, and for many, many years, people have come into government because they want to give back. I think that the parts that hold back many people are, it can take 12 to 18 months to get hired. Not only are you taking a pay cut, now you don't feel valued at all at the beginning of the process, right? And that's not even counting when you need to go through your security checks. So our federal government can control far more how quickly we hire people, whether or not we're focused on subject matter expertise, and whether or not there's a ladder for folks to move up and through. We can control those things much more. And by the way, it's those things that keep people in a role for longer periods of time. So absolutely, money is important. Let's not say it isn't. But people will come and they will join. And that's what we found. I thought we were only going to bring in 20 people. I was told when I was going to, when I was recruited that we were only bringing 10 to 20 people into the federal government for USDS. And that was my job. By 2016, we had 206 people and had reviewed 350 who had gone through the process and who had, who had left because they were able to make those choices for themselves. We've got to be able to do that with defense. Well, and it sounds like, based on what you already said, Jennifer, that Congress has given authorities to ease some of these burdens on hiring people or transitioning them in. You mentioned that we're just not using them in the right way or we're not using them as effectively as we should. Well, I mean, look, these hiring authorities, the concept is we've got to make it easier to hire folks for cybersecurity roles. Sure. But we have a lot of role. We have a lot of these direct hiring authorities. And it's, you know, we, we focus a lot in any given moment on what's the big issue. But if there are some amazing people and some people who have been fighting the system who are inside hiring and they're trying to hire effectively and they get calls all day that are everything that they've done wrong and everything that they should be worried about. And there's a lot of risk aversion in part because of how we've structured that system. And so it can be hard to use authorities. And I didn't realize how hard until I was speaking to some folks in DOD. And I had generally been working with people who had been able to use the authorities with the defense digital services or so on, where it was a lot easier. But I started talking to folks who were, you know, uh, mid to senior level at different levels of the DOD in one of the services. And they had to go through five people to even find out if an authority could happen when that was not the intent of Congress. The intent of Congress was to be able to hire for those roles that you need. And so I think we need some really clear statements. I think it'd be helpful. We need really clear statements that uh, that we can hire. But the fact is, is that if you read the laws, if you read the regulations, we can. It's just folks need to feel comfortable with it. That sounds a lot like we've never done it that way before or something. A lot of this can translate into, well, let's just hire a contractor. And that does not solve the problem, however, because we need to have these people embedded in our defense and intelligence workforce as employees as opposed to just contractors. I think there's a really good expansion on that initial question that Caitlin asked was, is it all just about pay? And of course, pay is a factor, but you both have articulated a variety of different factors in addition to pay that really get in the way of, of hiring and retaining a technical workforce. So I'd be really interested to dive into a couple of these issues because I think they're really on the plate for the Department of Defense right now as we're thinking about modernization and readiness. So could we speak to, you know, what is the, the data and computing infrastructure? How does that impact the ability to 
retain technical talent? What is that role of organizational culture? And then we even, you know, alluded to kind of a mismatch in career models and the way that professionals gain experience now by being able to do short rotations, two to four years, and then rotating back out to private sector or coming in to the DOD. So are there any ways that we can start thinking about tackling some of these, I guess, organizational environmental factors that are really preventing the hiring and retention of a a strong digital technical workforce? First of all, whenever you see a system that's behaving in a way you don't like, you have to ask yourself, okay, so why is it behaving that way? You might ask yourself, so what are the incentives that drive it to behave this way instead of that way? How could I change the incentives to drive different behavior? Do I have the ability to change those incentives? That's why some of those laws were passed to increase the flexibility of hiring arrangements in the belief that the hiring arrangements were too rigid or too time consuming. I can give you, and this is a cartoon example, so please don't take it too literally, but imagine that uh, that you're offered a position in the Defense Department and, uh, and we need your technical expertise in order to get all the software to work. And by the way, we're going to teach you how to write COBOL. And so part of the problem is the aging equipment. And some of that is a consequence of, for example, the refitting schedules. If you're in the Navy, you got a ship and it may not come back for refitting for 20 years. So there are a bunch of variables in here that could potentially detract from or be less attractive to come in because you're not working with cutting edge stuff. So that's another reason why we have to get this stuff upgraded And of course, now it's a chicken and egg because you can't upgrade it. You don't have the staff that understands how to do that. And so we need to find a way to get this ball going. A hundred percent. I mean, just broadly during the COVID-19 pandemic this past year and a half, I recall this is a problem that's shared not just by the Department of Defense, but by all of the country. And uh, there was a, you know, there are COBOL cowboys and, and a variety of folks getting paid top dollar Okay, Um, (laughs) to to fly around the country and deal with systems that, you know, we're not even training people for anymore, except for if you're in government, then we might be training, training you for. But I I think, you know, part of the issue is the department's policies and procedures for technology treat it from an operational perspective as problematic overhead, right, rather than as fuel for the mission, right, as we're talking about data, as we're talking about infrastructure, as we're talking about, right, and so that is something that is um, that is really that's a different mindset that I think is going to be a differentiation in mindset that's going to be critical for bringing in people. I'm just thinking about uh, problems that we have in the private sector. Uh, the term technical debt is an interesting phrase, and it's one that we generate on our own because you invest in hundreds of millions of lines of code, and they sort of work, and you know you go on to the next big thing, but you're still relying on all that other stuff until finally you discover, holy moly, nobody knows how that stuff works anymore. And how do we retire our technical debt? So we have this problem. The Internal Revenue Service, for example, has ancient code, which is still running because they have to keep the history for long periods of time uh, of what transactions have occurred over the years and with different regimes for uh, taxing. So uh, the Defense Department has similar technical debt. And figuring out how to dig our way out of that is hard, especially if it's a if it's a gigantic system and you say, I have to redo the whole damn thing. Here's a 700 page RFP. And every one of us knows that we can't possibly work the way that 700 pages says. So if you're going to bid on that, you better be prepared to discover it doesn't work that way. Anyway, you know, I could go on and on here, but we have 
many different fronts on which we need to make progress in order to achieve our objective, which is to have a much more highly technically trained workforce in our defense and IC activities. Well, and you're saying a lot of things that sound to me like measures of readiness. You know, what does the equipment look like? What is the skill set of the people that are there? How ready are we as the national security community to deal with the threats that the United States faces on a daily basis? We measure readiness for the different services and other aspects in our community. I mean, I, I work on space security and space systems, and we can kind of measure based on the capability of our satellites and our ground forces what our readiness status is. Is there something like this for STEM talent? So one answer is, have we done a survey to figure out how much STEM talent we have and what background do they have and how old is it and you know what do they know? I mean, this is Jennifer was alluding to collecting data. That's some of the kind of data that we need to have in order to figure out how skilled is our workforce and are their skills up to date or are they not up to date? And how do we get to the point where they can help us increase the currency of our underlying technologies? I can't resist to remind you that as time has gone on, we've become so much more dependent on technology, especially computing technology and software, that it has become a risk factor for us. Our dependency is also our risk. The vulnerabilities are a risk. The ransomware attacks and the denial of service attacks are all risk. And so the more rapidly we move along that path, in some sense, the more risky it is, unless we have the right people to both build, operate, and defend those systems. Yeah, and I would say that right now we're, we're not yet on that path, right? We keep, we're talking about it. But until we actually have the mid and senior senior level leaders who can train and support at an operational level, that's going to be a challenge. And also just to what you were alluding to, that there are a couple of things. Number one, you know, if we look at the workforce, uh, the tech workforce in the federal government broadly, I believe it's something like less than 3% is below, please forgive me, it's in the single digits, less than 3 or 6% are under 30. What does that mean? Well, what it means is now we don't have a lot of folks who are moving up, right, and who are learning and growing in the ranks who can take over and who will be those mid-level and senior level leaders with deep understanding of our federal government. And that's a problem. I would also say that when we talk about thinking, and, and I'm going to talk about agile with a small a, but like, you know, it's going to be important that we not build our software like we're building battleships. This is one of the key findings of the SWOT analysis that the Defense Innovation Board came up with, is that we have to look at it differently. We have to approach how we build software differently. And that takes people and leaders who understand how to build software differently. And by the way, our entire budget structure is structured to build the battleships, not the software. So while we talk about hiring effectively and we talk about providing readiness, we talk about making sure that there is readiness in the Department of Defense, we have budgetary structures that prevent us from being ready because we have to come up with systems and all of the recs and everything for the next 20 years in a document. And that's just not the way we're going to build effective software because everything in, in, in a year, the software requirements are going to have changed and we'll learn new things. In five years, they'll probably be out of touch. And so we just have this really interesting tension and challenge where, you know, we have DARPA and amazing organizations that are cutting edge and thinking and research and pushing uh, the edge of technology. And from an operational perspective, 
the procurement processes, our budgetary processes, and our hiring processes do not match what we need to be doing right now. So I, I just can't resist since you mentioned DARPA. Of course, DARPA paid for the ARPANET and the internet. And one of the interesting things about the internet was it wasn't a procurement. It was a, a research project. And we had graduate students working on it, fully civilian-oriented, even though we were clearly trying to aim this at command and control. Uh, we were experimenting with packet voice and packet video in the late 70s and early 80s with not enough bandwidth to do very much. The architecture turned out to be incredibly flexible. It was adaptable. You could add new layers. You could extend layers horizontally, which is exactly as what has happened. And so as need has arisen, new capabilities have been injected into the system and new institutions have been created as well. So we might look back on that and ask ourselves whether there are things that we should start now, or maybe should have started earlier, that would give the same kind of flexibility and agility that we've seen out of this internet. Now, I don't, I'm not trying to argue that everything should be internet or that it's the only solution to anything, but the properties that it exhibits might be instructive for us if we abstracted and said, well, what, are, what properties do we want? What are the desirable properties of a procurement process for complex systems? And one answer is don't try to specify the whole thing Try to outline what it is you want it to be able to do, recognizing that you won't have all that right, and then do some kind of iteration. That's why these other procurement authorities are so important, because they don't necessarily force you into a specify the entire thing first. I think that is such a terrific way to wrap up the episode. The systems engineer in me is so excited to hear us talking about abilities and system attributes and how do we think about our workforce system, our talent system as a critical function of national security and how do we build one that is adaptable and flexible and resilient and we've had so many great ideas but while Jennifer Vent while we have you both here with us one thing Caitlin and I like to close out the episodes on is y'all are the experts in this field so help our audience understand what are you going to be looking for in the coming years to signal either we're starting to go down that path you described or we need to intervene and get on that path. What are the kind of next big things you're looking for? Well, I can tell you what I'm anticipating, which is a skyrocketing evolution of communications technology, the LEO satellites being pretty dramatic, 5G and 6G and so on. And the second thing is that we've made this huge win out of what's called the reduced instruction set computing architectures. You could compile for almost any variety of hardware because they all had very similar kinds of capabilities. But now what's happened in this period is movement towards highly heterogeneous computing architectures. And it's going to force us to rethink how we do software all over again in order to correctly target for special capabilities that uh, might be needed to optimize solutions to certain kinds of problems. So this is an absolutely fascinating turn into a new world of heterogeneous computing. So it sounds like we better get on this business of upskilling our STEM workforce and getting the right digital talents in place so that we can realize this great capability. Jennifer, what are you going to be looking for? I, just what I was going to say, that in order to do that, <laughs> in order to use that broadly, I would say there are a few different areas that I would see us needing to see progress. And they're going to sound, after that commentary, they're going to sound utterly simple and ridiculously not complex. 
And that's because it is not, forgive me for saying this, it is not rocket science. Like we just need to spend the time, the energy, the effort of the funds and the political capital to do this. But when in the private sector, best practice in terms of hiring is 30 to 60 days. It's 30 to 60 days when you hire someone, you have ident- you've already identified the person. That's how long it takes to hire, right? So I would say, number one, in the hiring area, we're actively recruiting. We're using subject matter expertise in order to be able to determine if someone is technically competent. We are not always doing that now, and that is a problem. So subject matter expertise, and then we're hiring effectively and within using best practices, right, from the private sector. Not the worst practices. We know those are bad. The best practices, <laughs> Okay. And then I would also say, you know, and I alluded to this, and I think this will make a difference for what Ben was talking about as well as for hiring leaders broadly, but creating the context for a success that we have appropriate budgetary, like that our budgets support the types of projects that need to be created from a technical perspective. To your point about systems, Lindsay, we need to have the right budget, the right monies in order to be able to spend them effectively, in order to be able to build new and exciting things, in order to attract people who want to build those things, in order to attract people who want to deliver on them. And then I would also say it's really it's hiring its budget and its procurement these have become (laughs) my most exciting moments is talking about hiring budget and procurement because that is what moves government so we need to get better at all of those things we need to look at subject matter expertise we need to be hiring actively recruiting the people who know what they're doing from the outside and we need to be upskilling those on the inside and providing opportunities for very clear opportunities for growth and a ladder for folks who are on the ground in our military right now and we can do it again not rocket science it just takes time energy and focus you know it just occurs to me that an exchange might be of some interest putting the military into the private sector putting some of the private sector into the defense department for a period of time, and we might talk about six yeah. months or three months or something like that, so that they begin to recognize both strengths and the challenges that these two sectors are facing it might be a refreshing way of getting solutions. Interesting that you should say that. The 2015 NDAA, I believe it was 2015, had an exchange program in the DOD that allowed that to happen, uh, and nothing happened with it until I think 2017, and I think they're testing it out now. So that is one of those things that could happen if folks wanted to do it and if folks felt comfortable. But we've got to be able to set the appropriate incentives for our colleagues in hiring to allow that and in legal to allow that. Awesome. I love it. Closing out such a wonderful episode on a actionable recommendation that we have the authority to do right now. So thank you, Vent. Jennifer, so much for taking the time to speak with us today. This has been um, just a delight to have both of you on to share all of your wisdom and insight. So, Lindsay, I know research on the STEM workforce has been part of your portfolio here at CSIS. What did you take away from this discussion? We covered so much ground. I mean, we talked about so many different things. We talked about the need for a generalist workforce to really upskill and increase the knowledge of technical and digital topics across the workforce. But we also talked about the need to have specialists and have really specialized talent in specific places in the Department of Defense, in the Office of the Secretary of Defense, in the armed services, both military and civilian. And so we just covered so much ground. I will say I was so excited to be able to talk with Jennifer again, who is just a wonderful human and so great that we had Vent Surf on the podcast. 
I don't know if anybody has Googled him. Check out his Wikipedia page. He is one of the fathers of the internet. So who better to tell us about his thoughts and perspectives on growing a STEM workforce for organizations. And it was just, we covered a lot of ground. I think, you know, some of the big takeaways for me are that, you know, we have to do both of these things at the same time. This isn't a conversation about, do we only need engineers in the building? Do we only need computer scientists? But so much of this is about, we have to have a baseline understanding of digital topics across the entire enterprise. And that's just as important as, using hiring authorities to get in technical talent. But, you know, having Venton to really be able to give us that perspective of how intertwined digital systems and technologies are in our day-to-day workforce, it really does bring about a new level of knowledge and understanding that is required to be successful in a digital organization in the year 2021 and moving forward. Yeah, and I think this really ties in with the episode on software acquisition as well of like, Without these experts working and setting policy and setting the requirements themselves, we're just 10 steps behind where commercial is, but also where we should be. And for the STEM talent management, I kind of had like three big buckets that I pulled out of it. And that was hiring, budget, and procurement. And so for me, learning that, you know, we have the people out there, we just need to invest in them, we need to be able to more quickly onboard them to give them a computer on day one, like it is a very common story to hear like, oh, I'm starting in the Defense Department, and I can get into the building, but I can't do anything. So I'm kind of just like reading papers and intro or like welcome binders, basically, for the first couple of weeks. Like that's just not acceptable, I think, there. But it's also definitely not acceptable when you're bringing in a STEM workforce that we so desperately need. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and this extends beyond just the STEM workforce. We're not always talking about really radical ideas, like Caitlin said. Sometimes it really is as simple as a computer on day one. That should be where we're starting from. And, you know, if you think about the, you know, let's focus on the hiring piece. So what we're really talking about is this broader talent pipeline. And this does apply to people that are not STEM majors or STEM background, but also to STEM background. So there's, you know, you have the hiring the recruitment, how do we identify the people that we want to bring in? How do we bring them through that process to get them to day one? And there are a lot of ways that we could even make small improvements that would make that process go better. So thinking about the lengthy hiring timelines, and this isn't about throwing all security requirements out the window, but why do we have two-year, three-year hiring timelines for national security positions and then throw our hands up and wonder why we're not getting the best candidates. Nobody can afford to wait for two to three years. And it puts people in a really awkward position to have to go take a job knowing that they're just waiting for you know the hammer to drop on a job perhaps two years down the road and then they're going to disappear. And so thinking through how can we streamline that process, you know, there's some really interesting ideas about even using new technologies like machine learning to help process that paperwork to identify anomalies that could speed up the processing for a majority of the people. And I am really excited that the concept of security clearance reform has become a big topic in DC. And so we are really thinking about how can we speed up this process so that we have, you know, the requisite clearance 
We've done the investigations, but we can't wait two to three years anymore. And I do believe the timelines have dropped, which is impressive, but they're not getting to where they should be. And then another part of that problem before you get to day one is a lack of transparency. For those of you that have not gone through this process, it is a black box. There's not really many ways to get updates on what your status is. You don't have any way to reach out to somebody and ask, where am I in the process? What am I doing? What's my status? And that is not a thing that happens in the private sector where hiring timelines are a lot shorter. They do execute some form of background check. Obviously, it's not as extensive, but there is more transparency in that process of where you stand as a job candidate and to really get off on that wrong foot of this process is going to take a long time and you're going to hear nothing for months and then you're going to get an email one day. And so even just thinking about how do we improve that aspect of the process and that's not even talking about what happens once that candidate gets into the building, which is like you said, Caitlin, computer on day one. Now we start talking about in the hiring pipeline and the talent pipeline Now we start talking about the question of retention. Once I get you in the building, once I identify the candidate, how do I keep you? And that is a huge problem for the national security workforce, particularly for people with a STEM background. Well, and I think Jen and Vint both touched on this, that it's not just pay. It's not like you and I are in the national security workforce ourselves. Obviously, if we left what we're doing now, we could make a lot of money elsewhere. But we don't because we think, that there is a lot of value in public service. There's a lot of value in the work we do. And it's no different for that STEM talent that the government is trying to reach. And so we just need to be able to reach out there. And I really love that Jen said, we have the authorities to do this. We can hire these people more quickly. We can hire them on different pay scales. We can do all of these other things. Congress has let us do this. We just have to figure out how to actually use those hiring authorities that the department was given and execute. And so it seems like the tools are there. We just need to have a little refresh of the mind and retraining within DOD to be able to get them in the door and then to continue building on their own careers, giving them professional development, giving them consistent trainings, letting them maybe move between departments or between the different services to get different experiences. They sound so easy and they sound so simple, but right now with the way that the department is structured, it's not. Yeah, I will say just to follow up on that on a couple points. So one, you mentioned the pay. So end of last year, my colleagues, Morgan Dwyer, Melissa Dalton, and Angie Hidalgo did a research project on the STEM workforce. One of the really counterintuitive things we found was that on average, compared to other federal civilians, STEM positions pay more. So they are actually getting a pay bump relative to their peers for a STEM position, a a digital engineering position. Understandably, it's not as much as you make in the private sector, but it is, you know, looking at that comparison across the enterprise, they are actually getting more money. I think when we were conducting our research, one thing that we found is like, yes, pay matters. If it's, you know, an order of magnitude more to go to the private sector, of course, I'm going to go to the private sector. If you're offering me $50,000 and the private sector is offering me $500,000, like (laughs) no question, like I know where I'm going, but it's not that level of discrepancy. It's not as stark as an order of magnitude. And I think oftentimes... We look to pay because the federal government 
cannot. And I think there's a decent argument to be made that it doesn't have to. It shouldn't compete dollar for dollar on pay. But oftentimes we look to pay as the simple answer and throw our hands up of like, well, we can't possibly compete on pay. So what can we do? We're just not going to be able to do this. But the reality is when you think about organizations bringing in talent, it's not just about pay. It is about the environment in which the talent is working and existing. It's a bigger hurdle to get over having a computer on day one than it is to think about what is my pay relative to when I'm out in the private sector. And one thing that we found throughout our study was that it's not just pay, it's that environment that surrounds the talent. It's not having the right tools or authorities to execute your work. And we struggle with this particularly on the digital workforce front, which if you think about like STEM is science, technology, engineering, and math, a subset of that is computer science and digital engineering, data scientists, this kind of like specific class of talent that we're bringing in. And bringing that talent in and saying, we want you to go be a world-class software programmer, but you're going to come into the department. We're not going to give you a computer on day one. You're not going to have the tools and authorities to go do software engineering. You're not going to have access to data. You're not going to have access to the latest and greatest coding tools. We're going to have you on generations behind where the private sector is. So go do your job. And then when they leave, it turns into, well, we couldn't pay them enough. When it really is about what is that environment and what is that culture around the talent. I will say, you know, I've had conversations recently with some colleagues and they were asking, you know, they were in the military and they said, you know, I went and visited a startup and I saw, you know, people in hoodies and shorts and there were foosball tables. And is that what we have to do to compete? And we had to take a step back and say, it's not about can you wear a hoodie to work? It's what does that represent? They work in an environment that encourages experimentation and playfulness and thoughtfulness. And it encourages people to take risks and try new things and see if they work. And you don't have to wear a hoodie for that. You can have that culture in that environment in a department you know, you know, in a military unit. But it's more about what is that culture and an environment and how do we bring that to the national security workforce? And maybe people still wear suits to work and that's fine. But can you take the risk? Can you try new things? Can you experiment with software? It sounds like this is something that we've heard in all throughout all of the episodes, right? The department's fear of failure, the department's fear of taking risks, And I think we've heard from a lot of experts that we're at a point that if we don't start taking these risks and shifting how we look at these problems, we're going to fail from not being risky enough. And so even with the STEM education workforce piece, like allowing people the option to try new things and fail Mm -hmm. in a small scale and a, you know, secure environment in a testing process and maybe a war game or like a tabletop exercise where it's designed for them to fail or to try out new things and fail. These tools are available already and we use them in different ways all throughout the national security enterprise. We just need to rethink how we approach the problem. Yeah, I think, you know, the Silicon Valley, Washington, D.C. divide, and I'm not a big fan of, you know, the, well, we can just take the culture and wholesale import it to D.C., but I think there's something to be said for that mentality of fail fast and fail early, and we have to think about what is that management chain, are they risk acceptant, 
Are they risk tolerant? Are they willing to let a team fail fast and fail early? We also can't forget the role of Congress as the appropriators and as the holders of the power of the purse that allocate money and fund programs. Is Congress going to become more risk accepted and more risk tolerant? And perhaps if a program fails, is that a bad thing? Do we cut it off and move to the next one? Um, But Congress is historically not very risk tolerant and risk acceptant. And I don't think we can, you know, ignore their role in that. But you did bring up an interesting point, the ability to hire specialized talent, to hire them at a higher pay scale, to bring them in quickly. We have those authorities. The problem is executing on those authorities. Is there this idea of, of precedent and reciprocity? And if I use a hiring authority to bring in talent, can I use that authority again? And so part of this has to be, you know, looking within the department itself to say, what are the authorities I have? And I'm actually going to go use them. I'm going to go use the authorities to bring in software engineers. And then, of course, once they get in there, we have to like actually give them the latitude to do their job. As we wrap up, I'd like to thank our sponsors, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Google, and Second Front Systems for their support of this series. Visit our show page at csis.org slash techunmanned for show notes and more about our guests and recent publications and reports that we mentioned. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at techunmannedpod. And don't forget to like, subscribe, rate, and review this series wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you in two weeks.